We've been in Colossians for now three weeks. I want to take that as my text this morning from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians, part of it anyway, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And if you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1169. Colossians chapter 3 and beginning at verse 5. And won't you look at that with me again? Colossians chapter 3 and beginning at verse 5. In which the Apostle Paul, who is himself incarcerated in Rome, was writing to these believers in Colossae, believers he had never met actually, but they were the result of someone else's ministry, uh, a fellow worker of Paul's. He said to them, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. What, Paul? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Indeed, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here there is no Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. This morning I want to talk about the believer's radical rejection of sin. The believer's radical rejection of sin. Now in the New Testament, the term, the English term that we are familiar with, sin, is in the Greek a, a, a term called harmaratia. which literally means to miss the mark. In fact, it's a word that comes from archery, that there's the target. <laughs> Whether a practice target or one that you're in, because you're engaged in a battle. And when you harmar atia, you miss. You miss the mark. You miss the goal. And so by a definition, if you like, Sin is to miss the mark. It is to fall short of God wants what God wants for us, the goals that he has for us. Now, in the world, uh, sin isn't generally a huge, great concern. You may have noticed that. In fact, you may have lived that kind of life, as many of us have. But for the believer, sin does matter. It is a huge, great, big deal. In fact, I love this line from Francis Chan. He wrote in his book called Erasing Hell. He wrote, he wrote this in some, somewhat a sort of spiritual frustration as a believer trying to love God in a sinful world. He said, God, I don't want to just fit in anymore. Holy Spirit, save me and set me apart. And to be set apart from the ways uh, uh, that the ways that, as they usually are in the world, is to commit ourselves as believers to a radical rejection of sin. 
And in our text, the Apostle Paul gives us two reasons for so doing. And the first is that as believers, we radically reject sin because God radically, radically rejects sin. Indeed, notice again verses 5 and 6. Put to death. That's pretty radical language, isn't it? In fact, you're familiar with this phrase. and In fact, it's more applicable to Paul talking about these things in Romans chapter 6 where he goes into some detail about it. But he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Uh, and uh, p- people will talk about uh, maybe a wayward son or something or, or a person who really hurt them or something, and they'll say, that person is dead to me. So this radical language, in fact, in the King James, it's mortify. And sometimes when you hear, you know, if you're running in theological circles and you're talking about ascetical theology, you'll talk about mortification. That is the putting to death of sin in our lives. But pretty radical, isn't it? By the way, the Bible isn't very tame. You might have noticed that if you spend any time reading it, including the New Testament and including Jesus. (laughs) But Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is, as he says, idolatry. For on account of these things, (laughs) the wrath of God is coming. And so Paul says that um, the wrath of God is coming, that, that God judges sin. Indeed, that God's disposition towards toward sin is, is divine wrath, which is a, not only a radical thing, but rather a scary thing. Indeed, God doesn't love sin. We may love it. People may love it. God doesn't love sin. He hates it. He hates it because it's unjust. He hates it because of what it does to, our, to us in our lives. He hates it because when we practice it against others, it is an injustice to them. And so God doesn't love sin. He hates it, and we're told that he will judge it. Now, for someone, uh, some people, you know, uh, this sort of thing may sound a bit odd, especially uh, if the only thing we've ever heard is that God is love and God loves everything, and God loves everybody. Well, God is love. In fact, in a sense, judgment coming, in fact, we we pray for that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's no sin in heaven, and in the kingdom to come, there'll be no sin. It will be eradicated, and judged, and dealt with. And that is a loving thing, unless you think it's loving for, for no justice to come. And for there be, to be no penalty for sin. In fact, if you've ever been sinned against, I'm guessing that justice on your behalf would be a rather welcome thing. But for some people, the sound of God judging sin sounds a bit odd. In fact, John Stott, in his book entitled The Cross of Christ, wrote this. He says, it's partly because sin doesn't provoke our wrath (laughs) that we imagine it doesn't provoke God's wrath either. But that would be a great huge mistake to draw that conclusion. Indeed, Paul says uh, that sin does provoke God's wrath, and so God judges sin. 
And the Apostle Paul says that our calling, if we're true believers, is to put sin to death. God rejects sin. He hates it. <laughs> he will judge it. And our calling, calling as followers of God through Jesus Christ is to kill it in ourselves. Notice again verse 5. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so our calling as true believers is to put sin to death. I've read the regular by St. Benedict on several occasions. In fact, I still have it on my bedstand with other things I think I'm going through a, a third or fourth time. But one of the things he says there is great. He says, in fact, I'll quote, As soon as the thought of sin comes into your heart, dash it against Christ. Now that's great. In fact, I've been doing that this last week. I have a problem with sin. Do you have a problem with sin? <laughs> I do. It pops in my head. And I've been thinking about Benedict. And that thing comes into my mind, and I just say, No! No, no. And he says, dash it against Christ like a rock. Kill it right there, even before you get started. What kinds of sins? Five, Paul mentions ten altogether, but he starts off with these five. He mentions sexual immorality. In fact, in the Greek, the word is porneia. Perhaps that rings a bell. That's where we get the word pornography. Sexual immorality. In the scriptures, pornea refers to sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, there were, there, not so many decades ago, that was sort of a normal, if it wasn't a normal practice in our culture, it was sort of an, a normal understanding. And you didn't have to go back too many uh, generations, and you, you can remember maybe uh, phrases like living in sin, are people who are promiscuous, and so on. But pornea in the New Testament is a reference to sexual activity that's outside of the covenant confines and protective boundaries of marriage. In fact, in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, we read this, And let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral. The word there is porneia. The sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now that doesn't get much airtime because it doesn't sound very... It's like, hey, come and hear a message about how you got to stop having sex as just a fun weekend activity. Who's going to come to that? Interestingly enough, Lauren Winner, in a book that wasn't published so many years ago, maybe 10, I guess, she wrote this book called Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. And this is what she wrote. I thought this was worth mentioning. She said, as with wealth and the way that we're called to honor God with it, so too with our bodies. Indeed, God made us with bodies. And that's how we begin to know that God cares how we order our sexual lives. <laughs> he gave you a body. You think he doesn't care how, we, how you use it or what you do with it? Indeed, he does. He cares about my body and he cares about yours. 
And so we're told by Paul to kill sexual immorality or to use the words of Benedict, if that's as helpful for you as it is for me, as soon as it pops into your mind or you're faced with the temptation, cast it against Christ. Kill it. And he mentions impurity. That's moral uncleanness, if you like. Uh, all of these things sound so good, you know, maybe, uh, especially when we're being tempted with it. But if we just think of it like, I, in fact, uh, when I was a kid, we used to talk about don't be dirty. We used to talk about dirty old men. We know what, we know what that means, <laughs> right? But the idea, isn't it an interesting metaphor, the dirty? Do you like dirty things? You like your house to be dirty? How about, how about uh, uh, dirty clothes? You like to wear your clothes dirty? Uh, do you know how much oil it takes, you know, let's say in a seagoing vessel, like a ship, how much oil it takes to, in, the, in the drinking water to contaminate it so that everybody who drinks it gets sick? Do you want dirty water or would you like clean water? <laughs> and how about a dirty life or a clean life? I'll tell you what, a dirty life's a great deal more complicated than a clean one. And if you like complication, well, then you can pursue that. But if you like the beauty of simplicity, then that's what God is calling us to, to kill impurity, that is, moral uncleanness. And passion, he mentions. Now, it's sort of generally stated, but the word here usually refers to a passion that's bad. We talk about a passion that's good. We sang about that. We committed ourselves to God in the song that we sang. You mean it, don't you? <laughs> I love these songs. They're like prayers to God. God, I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> passion, not good passion, but a passion for what's bad. In fact, in the New English translation, to make that clear for the reader, the, the new, new English translation refers to as shameful passion. An evil desire, which is somewhat related. There's a fair amount of synonyms here. Evil desire, we would think of it as lust. That thing that just we just, instead of dashing it against the rock that is Christ, we just lit it in. We lit it into our, we lit it, we lit it right in the door of our of the house of our body and let it sit down, and then all of a sudden it's not just a visitor, now it's taking over the place. <laughs> Kill it, Paul says, evil desire, and covetousness. That is, if you like, an inordinate and all-consuming desire to possess and control things that you think you must have in order to be content, and not only to have, but to have a lot of it. <laughs> because in the United States, our primary philosophy of life and at the center of our culture is consumerism. And at the heart of consumerism is, and by definition, is the belief that the more you have, the happier you'll be. <laughs> Which Paul refers to as idolatry. That is, the treating of things that are not ultimate, things that, that you didn't bring into this life, things that you can't take out of this life, things that won't last, things that are not ultimate, things that are finite. You think about that, you know, money. I actually heard a story years ago about, the, the, it was a story about the Titanic. 
and we see the movie and we have some sense of what was going on and the cultural and uh, the strata and the rich and the poor and so on. And the story is, is that a woman, because they were letting women and children on first to the lifeboats of which they ha didn't have half as many as they needed. And this woman was being led on, and she's wearing her minks and so on. She's a wealthy woman. And then before she got on the boat, she said, I've got to go back to my apartment. So she ran back to her apartments that was filled with all of the signs of her luxury and, and wealth. <laughs> and she picked up a brown paper bag that had two oranges in it. And she left all of the jewelry and all the rest of her fine clothing and so forth because that was what was most valuable then when you're getting onto a lifeboat as the Titanic is on its way to the bottom of the Atlantic. Indeed, that poses and begs a question, what do you think you're going to need when you stand before God to give an account <laughs> of your life? Your money, <laughs> your dream vacation home, the great job that you had and all the respect that you had of others because you did such a great job with it. Covetousness, which is idolatry, the treating of things that are not ultimate as if they were ultimate. Claude Payne, the one-time bishop of our own diocese, the Diocese of Texas, based here in Houston, wrote a book some years ago. In fact, I, I read it when I was a clergyman in the Diocese of Fond du Lac in Wisconsin. In fact, everybody, I think, was reading Claude Payne's book at the time. But he wrote this. He said, every human being worships at some altar. It may be the altar of God or it may be at the altar of fame or the altar of wealth or the altar of power or pleasure, or a hundred other forms of idolatry. Every human being, this is the point, every human being, me, you, and everyone else, has a reference point. A faith relationship with something, whether stated or not. And so that's the first thing. As believers, we radically reject sin because God is radically rejects it as well. Secondly and finally, as believers, we, are ra we radically reject sin because as believers, we have committed ourselves to a radically new way of living. Notice again verses 7 through 11. And in these things you too once walked. What? Sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these two you once walked. You know what I'm talking about, Paul says, when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And he gets more. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk with your mouth. And don't lie to one another, Paul says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
And here in all of this, there is not a Greek or a Jew, a circumcised person or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all that matters and is in all. And so as believers, we radically reject sin because as believers, we've committed ourselves to a radically new way of life. Interestingly enough, as Paul mentions it, if as believers we're now committed to living a new life, chances are that we haven't always been committed to a, a radical rejection of sin. As Paul mentions in verse 7, that before committing ourselves to Christ, which may be true of, of, of most of us, that even if you grew up in the church, I hear people telling this story, well, I grew up in the church, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was uh, 2012 that my, my faith came alive, <laughs> right? And that's where the change, there was the beginning of the change. We talk about the new birth, which, by the way, is not, didn't come from Jimmy Carter. It comes from Jesus. Jesus was the one who said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that's what he's talking about. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, all things become new. This is Jesus. This is his apostles. This is truth. And so before committing to, uh, to Christ, we might very well have lived a life of sin, even as Paul mentions it in verse 7, where he says, but he says, and these things you too once walked. <laughs> when you were living them. But now, he says, if we're committing ourselves anew to Christ, our calling is to put that all away. Literally, in the Greek, it is to put it off. And it's the same word that's used for put, take, putting off your clothes. It's like, put off those old clothes, those old behaviors, Such as, he mentions here, anger. <laughs> Even when we think we have good reason to be angry. Listen, are you ever angry and don't have a good reason for it? <laughs> In fact, um, people who are angry are the most right people I think I have ever met. I've never met an angry person who wasn't right. Have you? No, they're angry because they are right, whether they are right or not. And, 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 and here's often, this is what you hear. You know, if it wasn't for you, I, I wouldn't be losing my temper. I love this. Patrick Morley in his book, The Man in the Mirror, he wrote this. He said, when I'm feeling, my feelings are getting hurt, and anger begins its predictable rise inside of me, I have to confess, he says, that the other person isn't making me angry. He or she is only revealing the anger that's already there. They're lurking just below the surface of my conscious thoughts. Some of you are smiling at me. Because you know people who do this. And probably those of you who are smiling the biggest is because you know what it is to do this yourself. <laughs> And Paul says, put that off like old dirty clothes that you don't want to wear anymore. And wrath, which is another word 
or gay for anger. In James chapter 1, famously, the apostle James wrote this. Know this, my brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear. <laughs> I have such a problem with this. Even when I'm, talk, I'm listening to what you're saying, I'm so excited about what you're saying. I, I, I want to contribute to the... Shut up, Scott, and listen. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And the word there in the Greek is wrath. Be slow to wrath, seething anger. Be, God is saying, don't do it. 99 times out of 100, it's not called for. Every time you're mad, God doesn't consider it an expression of righteous indignation like, yeah, I'd be mad about that too. <laughs> know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger or the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Are you concerned about things being set straight? Good. And the best way to do that is to leave it with God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I guarantee you that God can straighten out things and, and provide the most perfect punishment for evil that you couldn't possibly produce. In fact, you think you're punishing people just when you're angry with them. Oh, well, big deal. Somebody did something to you and now you won't talk to them. God's got more than that in mind if what they did was a sin that he deems worthy of punishment. Put it off, Paul says. And malice, which may be in some ways related to that. We all know what malice is, to have uh, feelings of ill will toward other people. Do other people, do, do, do you have people in your life where when Things go wrong with them. You take joy in that. <laughs> right? That's malice. That's malice. You wish them ill, and you're happy that they finally got it. Don't do that. Wish them well. Be gracious to them as God has been gracious to you. You have freely given, so freely give. And when you do that, you'll be free. In fact, how long did you have to wait for them finally to get it? <laughs> how long did you finally have to wait to where you could laugh with malice at, that ba at their bad circumstance? And slander that is running people down, which we usually do when they're not around because we don't have the courage to say it to their face. And so since we're cowards, we talk behind their back and we feel empowered because there's other people, yeah, yeah, and we get all up into that. In fact, there's a remedy for slander. In fact, if you're not a malicious person and you do have goodwill toward all people, even people who may be doing you wrong, and that is don't talk about me talk to me. But that'll take courage and that'll take character. Put off slander. Mm -hmm. 
and put off obscene talk. It's, we think of this, you know, as a, well, you know what we think of it. Actually, in the, in the New English translation and the New American Standard Bible, it's translated as abusive talk, abusive speech. And that is basically what it means. Finally, and lying. Are you a liar? I heard something interesting. Somebody turned me on to a guy. I, 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 I spent some time this last week, on the weekend, last weekend, listening to some uh, uh, conversations and speeches and so on. A guy called um, uh, Jordan Peterson. And one of the things that he said in his, one of his presentations was, is that, and he's an older guy, maybe, maybe my age. <laughs> um, a professor formerly uh, at, at the University of Toronto in Canada. But he said back in 1982 or 81, he's actually he's a, he's a uh, psychoanalyst and a professor and he has a practice in psycho, uh, 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 psychology and so on. But he said, I finally decided I'm, I'm going to stop lying. <laughs> I'm not going to lie anymore. Because he just looked at his life, he says, I'm always lying. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Yeah. How do I look? Oh, you look great. On and on, these, these sort of frivolous things, and then maybe more, because to, to tell a lie would actually put him in a better situation than if he was to tell the truth. But, but he thought, that's not good. You know, it's like, uh, you tell the truth and you never have anything to have to remember, you know. If you're telling lies all the time, you say, what did I say to you and what did I... In fact, um, statistics show that people lie all the time. It's just sort of a second nature. And they haven't, I suppose, done what Peterson did back in the early 80s. But Paul here says, and stop lying to one another. They're fairly new converts. I guess they needed to be told that. I think some people that have been in the church for years need to be told that. I need to remember that. Don't lie. Indeed, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. How can you enter into the freedom of the truth when you habitually, or something of a lifestyle, a character trait of yours, is lying. And so Paul says, put these things off. And he says to, to do this, two reasons here. Uh, because we as believers have put off the old self, or in the Greek, the old man. Uh, it's probably a reference to Adam. We're all the descendants of Adam. God said to Adam, listen, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. <laughs> Have a great time. Just stay away from that one. And he and his wife decided, you know, I don't know if I can live a happy life without disobeying God and taking that one too. And so they did that and they plunged us all into this brokenness that we're having now to be delivered from. Having been delivered by God through what the Bible calls salvation or the new birth or, con or con uh, uh, conversion, we've made this new commitment to Christ. We've put off the old man. We put Adam off, so don't act like Adam anymore. And act in the way that I'm describing because you've put on the new self, or in the Greek, the new man. What do you mean? You've put on Christ. You've taken off Adam like you take off dirty old garments and you've put on Christ. And this is the way one lives when you're clothed in Christ. In fact, Paul mentions this idea in 
Romans 13 and verse 21, he says, And put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put him on. <laughs> put him on and wear him and live him. And so Paul says that we put on the new man Christ, which he says is, a, is, the, uh, is being renewed by knowledge and experience which is a new man that's being renewed after the image of the creator. We're being, through this spiritual process of commitment and God's work of grace in our lives, we're being changed more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of this in verse 11 as we come to the end. All of this is true regardless of our cultural, national, social, or ethnic background. The Christian faith and Christ who created all things, is international in his scope and focus. Look at that last verse. Verse 11, And here there is not Greek and Jew, or circumcised and uncircumcised, or the barbarian that doesn't speak Greek, or the Scythian who was known for barbarian and uncouth practices or, the, or one who's a slave in the Roman Empire, one who's free, but rather Christ is everything to all of us and he is in all of us. Someone has famously said that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much just to leave you there. And the Christian blogger Brett McCracken said, the church that will change your life is the church that challenges you to grow. <laughs> but growth doesn't take place all at once. In fact, that's why we call it growth. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't. Growth, growth assumes the passage of time, the growing of, from a smaller thing to a greater thing. But growth does start with commitment. And it can't get started without it. And growth continues with commitment. The constant going to it and learning it and practicing and failing and learning what I need to learn from the failure so that I can advance. <laughs> and because we are committed, we grow. I wonder, are you growing? the believer's radical rejection of sin. Let us pray. Lord, help us to do these things. And help us to understand. I think sometimes we don't commit because we are completely misunderstanding what it is that we would be committing to. And it seems like some difficult, hard thing the, the, that, that, that there's a, a cost in committing itself. That the cost lies with you. That you're trying to strip us away of some good thing and spoiling all our fun. Lord, that you would give us a whole garden full of fruit and not let us have that last one. That's mean, God. And so in our spiritual immaturity, Lord, this is the way we see things. But what you're trying to give us and what you're trying to protect us from
is to protect us from the evil and to give us the good that maybe in our own minds we can't even imagine what it is like. <coughs> if that's the case, Lord, just help us, give us the faith to trust you with it and commit the whole of ourselves, mind, body, and heart, our intellects, our emotion, our bodies, as Paul said, and present yourselves a living sacrifice to God, an act of worship. Help us to do it, just to trust, so that in trusting you, we will do it, and then we will find what we couldn't imagine before, and that is that all of your promises are true. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.